Hey, y'all, and welcome to Pain in the Pod. First of all, I want to thank all of you who have joined Patreon. It's just really growing, and the content over there is just getting better and better with each week and more fun guests. And so if you want to join, you go over to patreon.com slash pain in the pod. And as promised, once I hit my goal of 25 patrons, I'm going to read all your names out loud. There's more than 25 of you, but I'm going to read all the names just to thank you individually. And I want to encourage everyone else to go over there and see what's new. Here we go. I want to thank Christina, Claire, Dana, Daniel, David, Diane, Elizabeth, Emily, Finney, Heather, Ingrid, Katie, Katrina, Kelly, another Kelly, Kimberly, Linda, Lisa, Margo, Margo, Mary, another Mary, and another Mary, Natalie, Patricia, Rebecca, Sherna, Shelly, Sophie, Tay, Trashy Divorces, and Victoria. I want to thank you all so much. I've loved doing the Patreon and getting to do little different things over there. So like I said, if you want to join, you just go to patreon.com slash pain in the pod and check it out. Now, Got that out of the way, so let me get on to today's guest. Recently, I listened to an amazing podcast that was out of my normal realm of kind of true crime comedy, and it's called Room 20, and the host is Joanne Ferrion. Now, Joanne is an investigative journalist for the LA Times, and she worked on this story and podcast for years. Like, I was just asking her off mic, and it's four or five years maybe more actually for doing some math, which, you know, I'm not good at, but it's a beautiful story. And I'm so glad to talk to Joanne today about Room 20. Joanne, thank you. And welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell my listeners about your background as an investigative journalist and sort of how that led you into the podcast before we describe the podcast. Sure. So um, I've been a reporter in Canada and the U.S. for more than 20 years. Uh, and most of my career as an investigative reporter, uh, kind of going between radio, television, and and print. And um, one of the things, I, I don't think it's really a spoiler, you learn about this in episode one, that um, my mother died 10 years ago. And since my mother's death, a lot of my reporting has sort of been centered around end-of-life issues. And about five, six years ago, um, I started reporting about how people die. I spent a year reporting on hospice. Um, I spent another year reporting on people who are kept alive with feeding and breathing tubes in California nursing homes. Basically, they're on life support. And they're kept alive like this uh, for years, sometimes decades. Uh, There are more than 4,000 in the state of California in 125 nursing homes. The state pays for all of this care. And I probably spent eight or nine months reporting on this. At the end of my reporting, the head of the nursing home, a guy named Ed Kirkpatrick said, do you want to hear a crazy story? There's this guy who's been in this nursing home for 15 years. He's in a vegetative state we don't know who he is. And he goes by the name 66 Garage. So of course, you know, I wanted to know more. It took, um, it took several months negotiating um, access, being able to actually start telling this man's story. Um, I did a number of stories for the news outlet that I was working for, um, iNewsource and KPBS. And one day, 
about a year after first learning about this man in uh, 2015, October 2015, I decided to quit my job and learn everything I could about him um, and spend time in his room. And I have to be honest, I didn't think that decision through. I didn't know where it was going to lead me. Um, Looking back, there were times when I thought it was absolutely the worst decision I had made in my life. Now, you know, it's it's okay. But um, yeah, so that's how it all started. That's completely fascinating. So the podcast itself, I would say as a listener that it starts out as you trying to figure out the identity of a man who had been unconscious and on life support for 15 years, like you said, but each episode is so chock full and it's really so much more that itself could be a whole podcast of 20 hours itself with all the research you did just on that. But it actually touches on the amount of people that are on life support and why it touches on the three occupants of room 20, not just um, 66 garage and their stories. And it includes your own investigation into their identities and their families. And then, like you said, it touches on your own personal story with your mother. So the podcast is in the podcast world, relatively short, six episodes. But like I said, I think it could have been 10 episodes an hour each. So when you first started on it, the first goal was I'm going to find out the identity of 66 Garage. First of all, I felt like you found it out fairly quickly. As an investigative journalist, it didn't take you that long. And did you think when you first started like, well, this will be the hard part when that kind of turned out to be the smallest part? Yeah. So the reporting I had done early on when I was still employed had led had put a lot of stuff in motion in terms of finding out his name and it was really um a man named Enrique um, Enrique Morones who is leader of the Border Angels they're a migrant rights group i had gone to interview him about 66 garage and he was really moved by the story and once he got involved and he got other people involved that was the effort that really led to identifying who garage was so I guess I didn't think early on that, oh, this would happen or this would happen so quickly, but it did. I mean, quite literally, it happened quickly. I think what changed where it became a different story, as you point out, is um, the first week I spent in the room. It was it. I was told that garage was in a vegetative state. Um, I didn't think this was true. He had smiled at me early on in my reporting. The more time I spent in that room, the more I saw him as a thinking, feeling human being. And, and, and I know that sounds weird, but when you're, when you're in a vegetative state, persistent vegetative state, it, it, it means that you don't have emotions. You're not thinking, right? There's a nothingness. Um, and so when you see people who are in this state, or at least you're told they're in this state, it's kind of this weird dynamic. like. What what do you say? Do you say anything? It's 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 a really uncomfortable position, and um, being in that room, I felt so uncomfortable in the beginning, and decided that I had to start looking at Garage as this person. And um, once I did that, I felt like we had formed this bond, and I started to get to know someone who people said wasn't knowable, right? Um, so right. part of the story also becomes about whether or not Garage is actually conscious. 
Right. And I'll tell you from my own uh, personal experience, and you're talking about being uncomfortable, I think all the time about my grandmother who I was very close to towards the end, she'd had, uh, you know, a lot of strokes. And, and when you go to visit that person, that's not, it's not the person that you knew. And it's very hard to just sit there and talk because you think, well, she's there. She's interested in what I'm doing and she can't tell me what she's doing. So I'll just sit here and talk. And you sort of feel like a complete idiot. And then I notice on, on your podcast, how, when you're talking to them, you say, I, I, I realize I'm talking to this grown man, like he's a child, but you sort of do that sing songy, like, are you okay? And I found all that so fascinating. And I, and I found your character to be so strong to be able to do that because even when it was my own grandmother, it was so hard for me. It was so hard for me to go in and, and see her like that and see other people like that. And for you to go in and you're really talking to somebody who you don't know at all. So I want to, I want to talk about how you started talking with him and investigating who he was. And you find out pretty early on in the podcast that you do find his identity and you eventually find out what happened to him and his family. So let's talk about the family aspect of it and his sister that you found that lived in Ohio. When you went to see her in Ohio, you took along your son's Spanish teacher, which was unbelievable. That just literally, I'm like tearing up. It was so sweet. So when you went to see her in Ohio, how was that for you? Did you feel like, just tell me how you felt. About yeah, it. sure. So so, and so, no, no, no. And there's a long preamble leading up to that. And to your point, the podcast, you know, it's, the episodes are short and there's so much that is left out of it. And um, so the part of what you do here in the podcast is that first phone call that Ed Kirkpatrick, who runs the nursing home, makes to Juliana. And he has to tell her yeah, that her brother's not getting better. Right. But she didn't um, even know where he was. The Mexican consulate had reached out to her before that phone call. So she knew she, her belief was he was in a hospital in San uh-huh. Diego. Okay. So, But this was going to be the first phone call with Ed saying, this is his, the details of his medical condition. You are now his, um, uh, the, the person responsible for him when it comes to medical decisions, that sort of thing. Okay. So I, um, Ed allowed me to be in the room. I had permission from Juliana to record that phone call. And at the end of this conversation, Ed said to Juliana, look, there's this reporter who's been um, covering your brother's story. She's been spending time in his room. Um, Can she reach out to you? Can I give her your phone number? Is that okay? And, and actually Juliana, again, it was really touching her answer. She said, yes, I have no one else to talk to about him. And so then what happened was because her her first language is actually Mishtek. It's an indigenous language in Oaxaca. Uh, 66 Mirage, he went to school the longest out of all the kids and learned to speak Spanish in school. But Juliana had learned to speak Spanish once she came to the U.S. So fast forward, her, her first language is Mishtek. She also speaks Spanish, but her English is limited. So how was I going to communicate with her? I don't speak Spanish. and. I quit my job. I didn't have a budget. And so I reached out to a person that I thought could help me. My son's Spanish teacher, literally, I had met him once at a, at a um, sort of teacher parent yeah. thing, oh, wow. sort of event. Uh, but he just seemed like the kind of guy who would do this. And I emailed him and he said, um, yeah, of course, of course. So what we did is we arranged for phone calls. And initially we had these very long three-way phone calls 
with Julian, me asking questions, uh, Christian Michelle, the Spanish teacher, translating, and then Juliana answering, and then him translating back. And it was yes. ridiculous. It just went on forever. Oh. And actually, Christian said, this isn't working. We need to go to Ohio. And I'm like, really, you'll go? And he said, yes. <laughs> and um, and he did. And And so it was nighttime by the time we got to her town, by the time we got to her house. And again, Christian, I don't, I can't think of anybody but he better. He had already through these phone calls was so moved by her story. Um, he had already made this wonderful connection with Juliana. And I, I credit him for really paving the way for that meeting at her house. Um, she had a friend with her and her kids were there and her friend's uh, niece was there. And uh, we sat at her kitchen table and, um, and she looks like her brother. And she told us the story and I showed her videos I had taken of her brother as well. And it was, it was as heartbreaking as you can imagine. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine for, for now it was already 16 years. She thought that he was dead. She had hoped that he had made it across, that he had his own family, that he was living happily. That was her hope. But her fear really was that he was dead to now realize that he's in this limbo really in between mm-hmm. for all um, those, for all those years. Yes. Yeah. And alone and alone. Alone. Right. Yeah. 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 So we spent probably three hours at her house. And then after that we exchanged information. So I still can communicate with her. I communicate with the family through her oldest daughter and um, you know, and then they gave me permission because the question came up, that Garage didn't have, you know, he he wasn't able to ki- give consent. Um, his sister, though, did give consent for me to continue reporting on him and then to tell his story. Yeah, it was very touching because you did uh, initially get to talk uh, to him with his sister through like an iPad. So that was great. And then she did get to visit. Um, has she, she has not been able to visit since then, though. Not that I know of, unless something has happened recently. But um, well, it was yeah. crazy because she said that in their family there was twelve children, twelve children, and there's only three of them that are still alive: is her and her brother that's in San Diego, and then a, a half sister. That that's right. Wow, I mean that the whole story. Like I said, now that in itself could be an entire podcast. I yeah. mean, it was just so there was so much, and you know, I'd listened to it initially reached out to talk to you. And then, like I said, I was listening again in the last couple of days and thinking like, she could do like six spinoffs from this. I mean, it's like really crazy. So when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the other patients in room 20. So we'll take a break and we'll come right back with Joanne Ferriana of room 20. This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, any time you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six free months of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. Okay, I'm back with Joanne of the Room 20 podcast, and we've talked a lot about 66 Garage, uh, Ignacio, but I want to talk a little bit about Omar. So Omar was another patient in the room that 
one day after some time of being there, you looked over and noticed he was making noise and you were told he's nonverbal. That story completely blew my mind. And so tell me kind of the time frame of when you started talking to Omar to when you realized he was communicating. So Omar, the, the, when I first went into room 20, the middle bed was empty. So in the first bed was a guy they called Papa. He was an older guy. I think he was in his 70s. He had had a stroke. He'd been there eight years. In the beginning, his family had visited him, according to staff, but then they moved away. So um, him, like like 66 Garage, had never had a visitor. That oh, I my gosh. Seen. And that just like hurts my heart so yeah. bad. Yeah. yeah. And the middle bed was empty. And then... Um, garage who we know now is Ignacio was in the bed closest to the patio doors. Um, eventually Ignacio got a roommate and his name was Omar. And I believe Omar came into the room in December and I ignored him. Um, I was certain he was dying. I think everybody was certain he was dying or would die. And he was pretty young, right? He was 20. When he came in, he was 21 years old. He had been run over by two cars oh my God. on a highway. He was on his bike at 11 at night. One car hit him. He was airborne. He went onto the roadway and another car literally ran over him. Mm. And he constantly, his, his face was towards the ceiling. He was, he would often shake. His body was really contorted. Um, it was painful to, to look at him, to be honest with you. And I usually had my back to him. There's only three feet between the beds. So imagine a very tight space and yeah. I would have my chair. My back was basically to the middle bed. I usually had my laptop or something like that. And I would talk to Ignacio or, you know, be taking notes or something like that. And I have no idea why on this day in the middle of January, about a month after Omar arrived, my chair was pushed back towards the back wall and I could see both beds. And I remember I'm I'm writing and I'm like this and then I look up and I had brought a radio for Ignacio and I put it on a Spanish language station. It was playing music. And I just saw Omar's head that normally was up towards the ceiling slowly turn toward the radio. Like it was a very deliberate movement. And I ran over and looked over him and said, Omar, if you can hear me blink. And, and he blinked, it was a real blink. And then from that moment on, I just kept talking, asking him to blink while I'm texting Ed Kirkpatrick, the head of the nursing home, you got to come, you got to come quick, Ed. And that kind of, that was so unexpected. And it, then started this whole other part of the story with right. watching this young man come back to life. Yeah. I mean, you, you find out in throughout the podcast that, it, it, I mean, it was, it was funny because you were gone and you came back and you're like, you noticed that the two beds were empty. It was very alarming because now we assume Papa had passed away because he was very old, but you were very worried. Like what happened to Omar? And, you know, we flash, I won't tell the whole thing, but you flash forward a little bit and you're like, Omar's on Facebook. And you're like, (laughs) what? I mean, it was, he's still on Facebook. (laughs) So cute. I mean, his story, especially again, could be a whole other podcast. It was so touching. And I was like, wait, is Joanne the, um, the the Omar whisperer, like, how did, you know, did you feel like, what if no one ever sat in that room and talked to him? You know, would he have been able to communicate like, hey, I'm still in here, you know? So um, that's a really, really, really great question. 
And actually, it's probably a question that's going to prompt my next podcast um, because there is a 40%, up to 40% misdiagnosis rate when it comes to saying someone's in a vegetative state versus someone's minimally conscious. And what neuroscientists are now saying is that consciousness is a spectrum, that um, often it's it's not one or the other. It's like you might be coming in and out, right? And so Omar was still going to wake up, right? Omar was still going to turn his head toward the radio. The question is, what if no one notices? What if no one sees any of these signs? Um, and plus his accident within the first year of a traumatic accident like that. And if you're young, you have a much greater chance of recovering. Mm -hmm. So it's not that Omar wouldn't have been on a road to recovery. He probably would have, what would that recovery have looked like? What would, who would have been his advocate? Cause again, he had no one, right. Who would have said, Hey, he can make a sound or like, so it's not that he I think that the the doctor and Ed and people at the nursing home have been very generous in their comments about me helping Omar, and I appreciate that. I think, though, to me, the bigger issue, and, and you mentioned earlier that it's heartbreaking that people don't have anyone to come and see them. The bigger issue is there are, there are quite literally thousands of people just in California who live in states similar to this, right? And so if we decide that we're going to keep people alive, right? In the ICU, if we say, okay, no, we don't want to withdraw treatment. We want to keep feeding them artificially and help them breathe and do all of these things. And then we're going to send them to a nursing home. What is our obligation as human beings? Is it okay to leave them in a bed 24 seven? Should we pay people to be holding their hands and breathing to them and talking to them? Is that part of their care as well? And part of their recovery? Medi-Cal right now in the state of California, they like what what I heard over and over again, Medi-Cal pays just to keep people alive. Medi-Cal will argue, we give nursing homes 800 this nursing home 800 bucks a day to take care of them. They can decide what they want to do with that money, right? Arguably right. The, the Medi-Cal might say, well, pay someone to do therapy. But what what kind of therapy? What would that look like? And so I think I think this idea of human connection of um, and it goes back to Ignacio, sixty-six garage. Imagine living your life without a familiar voice speaking to you, without someone holding your hand. Like I get, I still get like shivers thinking about this. That it's I can't imagine what that life is like. So I think with Omar, medically, you know, things were going to happen because he was young. It was still close to his accident. You know, he had a better chance of recovery, but. And there is science that suggests that that human connection, familiar voices telling familiar stories, those things can help somebody recover. But, you know, what is it that we're doing for these people, I think, yeah. is your question. You think about a lot of times when um, babies are in NICU and things like that and how, you know, lots of organizations I've worked with, they're just like rockers. Like you just go and you rock the babies because they need that human interaction because the parents can't be there 24 seven if the kids are really sick. And I think about that, like, okay, well you can go and rock these sick babies because their parents can't be there all the time. What's the difference with the really sick people that are in hospital? Like, can you get volunteers to come? Like you're saying, literally just bring a radio, just sit and just talk a little bit. And, and, and maybe they make no reaction, but perhaps it's getting in there. You know, mm -hmm. I agree. Or reading. Mm -hmm. Reading to people. And, you know, by extension, um, old people in nursing homes, right? You mentioned, was it your grandma? Yes. It, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, 
there's so again, it's a spectrum. There are all, there are lots. So this nursing home, like a lot of nursing homes, they have different units, right? So the unit that I that garage was in was a subacute unit um, where people are kept alive this way. But across the hall is another unit, and that's a different population, right? These are people who tend to be older and sick and can't live at home on their own, but they they can talk and you know and all of that, and and they eat real food and they do all of these things and. They had, I mean, many families had visitors, don't get me wrong, but there are lots of people who, who no one ever comes to see. Oh, you're making me so sad. <laughs> oh my God. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. My daughter is really good with um, elderly people and helping, and she's also very good with like babies. That's just sort of her thing. And I told her, um, cause this coming summer, she won't go to camp cause she's too old. And I was like, you know, what you should do is volunteer down the street at the old folks home because- for a lot of people, it makes people very uncomfortable and they don't like it or get anything out of it. They feel terrible. They feel sad. I said, but for you, it's sort of your jam, you know, and you should, you should really use that talent to go and just visit with the old people. They just, you know, and she's like, yeah, you know, and I think like you, she just sort of has that in her. And I can admit for myself, it does make me very uncomfortable. And all these stories make me so sad. But I do want to take a little break. And then when we come back, I really want to talk about the hero, (laughs) Ed. I love Ed. So we're going to take a little break and we'll come right back with Joanne of Room 20. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups, it would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, I'm back talking with Joanne Ferrion of Room 20. And I really wanted to talk to you about Ed Kirkpatrick. First of all, as a Southerner, I loved hearing his Southern accent. <laughs> was Is he from North Carolina? Yes, yes. He is. Okay, because I know at the end you said he had retired to North Carolina. And I thought that must be where he's from. I love that um, accent. And I thought, how weird that he's in San Diego. Like what a, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ed... <sighs> He was so caring and so interested in all of his patients. Was he the director of just the villa or the whole, the whole the director, nursing home? The whole nursing home, the villa. He was director of that whole nursing home. And you totally nailed it. He was able to tell you something about everybody. And, and this is also a changing population, right? You have people who leave and people who die and people who come. And he would know their personal stories. He would know about their families. It was really remarkable. Yeah, he didn't have to get out a folder to tell you anything about 66 Garage or Omar or Papa. And the staff that worked there seemed to really know a lot. And the personal story that really touched me, a lot of this touched me, but when they were talking about the suctioning and how that's so awful to do, have to do that suctioning, uh, my dad 
last year, a year and a half ago, was very, very sick. He had gotten very sick from a, um, a chemo drug, had made him 10 times worse than he was. So he was in ICU for a long time. And I'm up here in there in Mississippi. So I was going back and forth. And so for me going back and forth, I would see different things, not that my sisters and my mom would see on a daily basis. And he was so sick at one point that they did have to do that suctioning uh, because he was unable to really control his swallowing and stuff. And when they would say to him, like, I'm so sorry, like, we're going to have to do it. I mean, he would kind of tear up, like, because he'd had it and he knew, I mean, he was 100% there, but his body was failing. It was awful. And we would say, well, we're going to, they would say, you probably want to step out of the room. So we would step out of the room and we would all be crying because I don't know what that feels like, but I had to imagine how awful it was. Mm -hmm. And then to hear that 66 Garage had to have it three, four times a day. And that the sweet staff would stand there and hold his hand and, and you would hold his hand. And then you think about the people that are sitting in there that have nobody to hold their hand. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that's another reason this story really touched me so much. Cause I think about my dad, who's now gratefully doing better, but he was going through that. And what if he didn't have six of us all standing around, you know? And that is so interesting about your dad being conscious and aware and crying before, like, no, you know, because he could express how horrible it was. Um, yeah, no, that's terrible. The, the To your point, the staff, um, incredibly compassionate. And they have to do this to a number of people on this unit multiple times, day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing. Yeah, I was there for a long time, but I could leave and go home and I could stop whenever I wanted to. And I didn't have to do the thing that, they, you know, I'm just watching and and watching, I have to say, is horrible. It never made it in the podcast, but in my notes, I had written about, it was one of the reasons that moved me to go over. And I thought I have to hold this man's hand because watching that happen and doing nothing felt worse, actually. Mm-hmm. It, it feels worse. You feel somehow complicit. in right. But it's not like they're doing it on purpose to hurt him. And and you know, yeah. And you know that it's helpful, but it's saving his life. If they don't do it, he'd die. It's saving his life. And and so uh, I I felt though, as I'm an outsider, I, he's not my family member. I don't know him. I I'm a reporter and I feel like, so first I feel I'm intruding. This isn't, I don't belong here. And then I watch this happen. I literally stick my microphone in to get audio of this happening, which also right. feels very gruesome. Right. And um, in the end, it's sort of, that's when I cross this line as I'm, I'm not going to be a reporter who stands by. I'm going to be a human being who tries to comfort him in some tiny way, right. you know? Yeah. And I think it's, I think that's the normal human reaction. That that's Yes, I, I think yeah. so. I think there's probably only so long you could put your microphone in and not Exactly. And not want to participate or help or comfort him. Right. Now, at the end, um, Ed, who I, I just tell you, I just loved listening to Ed. So Ed really struggled. You're talking to him. He's in retirement now. And he really struggled with the, why do we do this to people? Like, why is it hard to let go? And, and you know, in, in, my, in our own, uh, in my marriage with my husband, you know, he always says like the minute something's wrong, just pull the plug. Like, I don't want to be like that. And I'm kind of the opposite. I'm like, no, no, no. Keep me around. Because what if I'm like that Robert De Niro movie and like, I come back and then I can see my kids and know. And he's like, that never happens, you know? And so when you listen to um, your podcast, you think like, well, it happened just a little, 
for um, Ignacio and then a lot for Omar, not at all for Papa. You know, you think, well, Ed poses such a great question is, is how do you decide for another person, for somebody like 66 Garage who's laying in his bed for 15 years and nobody knows who he is? Like, now how is Ed going to go in and be like, well, today's the day, we're done, you know? So is that going to be sort of what you're going to delve into next? I'm going to actually go into next more about the consciousness, but th- I think the takeaway, it's so Ed, and, and I've written about this, so I, I think Ed would Ed is fine with me sharing this. He has an advanced directive. And in his advanced directive, his wife is not his decision maker. His friend is. Because to your wow. point, yeah, he said he'd rather have his wife angry with him than with herself. Or because the, the thing I experienced that you hear in the podcast, I feel like I killed my mother. This is normal. Like what I've learned from all this reporting, how I felt is normal. When we have to make decisions like this for other people. And this was despite my mother having an advanced directive that, um, see, I'm going to get upset about this, that we feel it's normal to feel like you didn't do enough, like you should have waited. What if you would have waited three more weeks? Would they have come up with a cure? Would she have gotten better? You you rack yourself with this guilt, this what if, right? Right. And having an advanced directive, and I'm going to sound now like some kind of public service announcement, but the (laughs) advanced directive that when you're healthy says, if after three weeks, you don't regain consciousness and they're still feeding you artificially and you still have a breathing tube, that's when they actually physically have to cut a hole in your stomach and a hole in your throat. So, and that's when you leave the ICU and you go to one of these units. So my advanced, I have an advanced directive. Mine might say something like, if I get to that point, don't do it. Mm -hmm. That's when you stop, right? For me, for me. And then, um, and I, my son, I wouldn't ever want to put my son into the position of guessing, right? Would right? What would she want? Because so, you know how that feels, because that's what happened to you, exactly. In a way, yeah, yeah. So I think being specific with what you want. To your point, what if what if you do get better, right? What if what if um, six months later or three months later you start to get better? With Omar, Omar was young. His accident was because it, it was traumatic. It wasn't, if you have a stroke, it's actually, you're less likely to recover if your brain is deprived of oxygen than if you have a certain part of your brain damaged by an accident. Mm-hmm. Age has a lot to do with it. So there are a lot of factors that can help doctors say, this is what we think will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but your husband's right. Like, does somebody wake up? Not very often. Right. Not very often. Right. Yeah. And I just I do kind of want to talk just a little bit about the situation with your mom and you sort of had to make that decision. Now, do you have two sisters? I have two older sisters. Yeah. Okay. Me yeah. too. <laughs> I also have two older sisters. And you know, you had to you have to make that decision because your father had, had passed away when you were younger and so the, your sister you are left with that. And I really felt so much what you said about well, now I've made the decision I've killed my mother. And you didn't know that your sister felt the same way. Um, and so I guess to your point, when you're walking around uh, the villa, the nursing home, you're thinking, what if I wouldn't have made that decision? Would my mom be like this, like perpetually frozen in time? And why would I do that to her? She has said specifically, she does not want that. Specifically, she said it to you. So I think that it does, it, it it just sort of like leaves out more questions than it gives answers. Like, 
you know, like I say this about myself, but now having listening to this and talking to you, maybe I should tell my husband like, all right, you know, don't, don't do it. Don't, you know, if I'm 70, don't drag it out till I'm a hundred and then you've died. I mean, you know, like, and then my kids have to make that decision. So it really is, um, it really is such a layered, a, a layered subject. It is. And when, when I was in that conference room with the doctor and with my other sister, and again, like I didn't, I mean, all, all I saw was my little tunnel vision part of the story. Of course. And then I never told, talked about it actually until I was doing this podcast and that's ridiculous. And I lacked such self-awareness that <laughs> I, I didn't even realize that I'm consciously that on some other conscious level, I'm doing this, right. I'm trying to answer this question for myself. And when, when the doctor said, you know what your mother would have wanted? And I said, yeah, she wouldn't want to live this way. I didn't know that actually we keep people alive indefinitely on life support. I, I, I had no idea. And I had no idea how many, because in my head was the Terry Shivos, right? The really famous case in the nineties, the woman, she was fairly young. She was in her twenties. She had a, um, a stroke or a heart, something, her heart stopped. Yes. And, uh, she was kept alive with a feeding tube. Her husband wanted to withdraw treatment. Her parents didn't. It was a big court battle. I think when we hear about these really famous court cases, we think, oh, there's one person in the country named Terry Shiva who was kept alive that way. Right. I think that's our understanding. And so at the time of that decision with my mother, I had no idea what that looks like down the line when you decide to keep somebody on life support. I, I uh, probably would have thought it like, I was like you, I said, I'm divorced now. I actually went through a divorce through this whole oh, God. process. Yeah. So, Lord. yeah. Um, so I was like, you though, I was like, I was saying, oh no, keep me alive. Like, cause I imagined somebody sleeping in a bed, looking beautiful, like, yes. like sleeping beauty. And then one day <laughs> you wake up. Yeah. And um, so then eventually as I start reporting more about end of life and what does that look like and, you know, how people die, I end up on this unit where people are kept alive on life support. And I had no idea that they existed. Um, so it's weird. Fate has this weird way of putting you, I guess, where you need to be at some point in your life. It was very right. strange. Yeah. And so you, you started off by writing um, this piece, you started off with the piece for the LA Times, right? It was actually the very first piece about this was for iNewsource and KPBS. They're the public media and investigative outlet in San Diego. Okay. Yeah. The podcast later was for the LA Times along with some other uh, pieces that went in the newspaper. So when you started this podcast, now we're going to segue into podcasts. So when you started doing this podcast, were you a listener of podcasts or did you look to any to say like, wow, this is really well done. I would love to do something like that. I was like most people who had listened to Serial and loved it. Um, and then started listening to podcasts that sounded like Serial. Um, (laughs) Me too. Yes. (laughs) And I, I mean, I have a long public radio background, so podcasts sounded like better versions of radio really to me. And I had a long history in documentary. Um, so I always liked things told over a long period of time. Yes. I can't say I, when I started it, really knew how to do a podcast or what that meant. I don't that's know. A, that's everybody that ever starts a podcast. <laughs> that's the same thing. Yeah. I don't know today if I know so much more. <laughs> this is what I've learned, that podcast is 
is just this podcast. First of all, it's just an audio file, but what I've learned is the making of it, whatever it is, it's whatever you decide it's going to be. It's, you know, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful because now I feel like we're telling, we're telling stories. I think the way they should be told. We're not in on radio. It's like four minutes. You're done. You're out of here. It's like, wait, I just got started. And, and it's so artificial. I think that the radio clock is very artificial and it's wonderful now to have long conversations and um, on shows like this. It, I feel like it democratizes information in many ways that now it's not just, oh, a few people who get to do this thing, you know, storytelling or yeah. interviewing. Yeah. Everybody can, you know? Yes. Yeah. I agree with that. And it's funny. I was just talking to, you know, my orthodontist assistant person the other day and I was sort of telling her what I did and she said, Oh, you know, I, I somebody put that app on my phone, but I, and I said, no, somebody didn't put it there. It's, it's there. Like it comes with your phone. She's like, Oh, she said, well, I don't know anything about it. So then I, you know, so someone who's never listened to one, I find myself in the position of trying to, you know, defend what I do and trying to explain it to her. And then she says, um, well, what, what are, what are they about? And I said, anything. I said, like, my mom likes to play bridge. You can find 400 podcasts about playing bridge. She's like, huh? You know, and I tried to really go through this whole thing. Like whatever you're interested in, there'll be something. And I was trying to tell her about how you can look at reviews and charts. And she said, well, I really like the TV show Outlander. I said, okay, well, I bet you can find 60 podcasts on Outlander and probably four that are great. And she's like, what? I'd opened up a whole new world for her. And I think that the way what you said was we're telling stories the way they should be told. That's and I think your podcast is a great example of that because your podcast is so chock full of so many different layers of the story that it made me now think like, okay, well, can you do an offshoot just on Omar? Can you do an offshoot just on the what about room 22? Like, you know, like I really wanted to know so much more about it. And like I said, I loved hearing Ed talk about his life there in the villa because he was so sweet and he knew so much about the patients and you, everybody would hope that their parent or loved one would be in a place like that where the people really, really care about them and don't just think of them as bed three in room 20. Like they really know about them and the people coming in to do the suction are saying, I'm sorry, I know this hurts. And they're, you know, they're being so sweet because you definitely, I've definitely been in places where you think like these people don't care. They're just Mm -hmm. doing their job, you know, Mm -hmm. and that makes you sad. So that was another tangent. But do you do you have any other podcast you would recommend? I've got Serial, but I mean, everybody knows that one. Do you yeah, have any other yeah. one? So um, In the Dark, season two, of really course. good podcast, tr- uh, true crime, but also just a real great examination of the justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a colleague who actually did, I, I, I know Audible calls them more audio documentaries, but it's a podcast. He just did one for Audible, The Dead Drink First. The um, Dead Drink First. Uh, yeah. It, it's an amazing 18 year journey. Wow. Um, he recorded, he, he actually is, he writes books. He's a Pulitzer Prize win, uh, winning journalist. And he's been recording audio his whole career. And he had tape that goes back two decades. And he grew up with a dad who had traumatic brain injury and was abusive. And he couldn't quite figure it out. And he, his dad always had this photo of this soldier that he was in World War II with. And his name was uh, Herbert Mulligan. And he believes that, so Mulligan dies and his remains are never found. So Dale Maharaj, who did this podcast, quite literally spends 18 years trying to find the remains of Mulligan. His dad's best friend. His dad's. 
And um, he does. Wow. Yes. And so, and he's got audio of this crazy journey. So I, I would recommend that one. That's that's on the Audible platform. That's Audible, okay. Um, there's so many out there. What else am I listening to? You In know, the Dark was so great. I mean, I'm from Mississippi, yes. so it's, oh, it's like okay. a huge, people, a lot of people talking about that in the, mostly in the positive, some, you know, fully believe Curtis Flowers did it. I'm in the camp that I think he didn't, but uh-huh. yeah, it's so that's a fact. That's unbelievable. That yeah. podcast. Yeah. Really, really great journalism. There's a, there's another podcast. Oh, oh, here's one. Uh, it's out of CBC uh, in Canada. It's another investigative one, um, Escaping Nexium, And it's about a woman who gets involved in a cult. Listen, and- Josh Block is my buddy. <laughs> I love Josh Block. Okay. I've been, I interviewed him in New York because he was living there at the time. And then I've interviewed him since once the um, trial started. I did another interview with him. Okay. Love his podcast. He's yeah. wonderful. He's yes. great. Yes. And I thought that was such a good example of just a story that was well told, well written, no bells and whistles, no podcast tropes. It was just like this very, very well, well told story. The CBC puts out some unbelievable mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah. Um, we've got, you know. Someone knows something. Is that that? Oh, I've CBC? heard of that. I haven't yeah. listened to it. Though. And we've got um, Uncover. They've got now yeah. like four seasons of that. Uncover was uh, Escaping Nexium was the first first season. Yeah, that one is that was sort of like the quintessential podcast that people first really got to understand what was going on there. In addition to, I think it was on like Dateline or yeah. twenty twenty or something. Yeah, exactly. And now everybody's in jail, so that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, it's so funny. I always say, oh, the Canadians are so nice and they put out such great podcasts. <laughs> um, and so it, you're uh, you're in that vein as well. Canadians. Oh, thank you. <laughs> nice Canadians. <laughs> well, tell people where they can find out everything they want to know about Room 20 and you. And so we can follow what you're working on next and all that. Sure. So, of course, it's available on your um, anywhere you listen to podcasts and on your Apple app, uh, podcast app. Also, if you go to the LA Times, latimes.com slash room 20. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the episodes are there as well as a really long print story just about 66 Garage. It will also lead you to a really long print story just about Omar. Um, I'm actually writing another story. There's a minor character in the podcast. I don't know if you remember him, Steve Simmons. His They'd been in a motorcycle accident, him and his wife. And um he, she had been there for nine years. Um, I have a story coming yes, out yes, in the yes. LA Times about them because he finally makes a decision on her okay. behalf. And okay. um, so it's sort of a continuation a little bit. And then I work on a podcast about the life and times of Peter Bogdanovich, the very famous director. Yeah. 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 So that should wow. be coming out in the spring. And then hopefully another one um, that's an offshoot of Room 20. What's your slant on Peter Bogdanovich? What's what's the, so, what's um, the angle there? It's it's through Turner Classic Movies, uh-huh. and um, I'm probably saying this before I should. It's it's basically he's had um, quite an amazing life and a yes. career, lots of drama in his life, yes. and he sat down with Ben Mankiewicz. Uh, ben is the the face, the host of Turner Classic Movies uh-huh. um, over the summer. Uh, telling his whole life story. And so we're going to kind of put it all together with, with Ben as, as narrator cool. um, about Ben, about Peter's life. 
Okay. Well, would you come back and talk to me about oh, that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And Ben, maybe we could get Ben to talk about it too. Yeah. Sidebar. Yeah. I used to work for Turner Broadcasting. It's, oh, all, no way. Co- it's all coming together. It's all coming together. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's awesome. Um, okay. So where can we find you on social media? Because you gave us the info Oh yeah, my the name. Podcast. So yeah. my name is, uh, it's J- Joanne Farian, J-O-A-N-N-E. F as in Frank, A-R-Y-O-N. I'm on Twitter. Please follow me. Yes, that would be great. <laughs> that's how I found you. Oh, that's right. That's how I found you. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. And I would recommend everybody listen to Room 20 because it is just an amazing story. And again, it's a short podcast and the episodes are short, but they're all out there now. So you could just listen to it all in one day. But it's really unbelievable and it's so touching. And I do not get emotional and my little cold black heart melts very rarely. But I was in tears at the end of it the first time I listened to it and the second time I listened to it. So if you're one to cry, make sure you're alone. But thank you so much, Joanne. And I look forward to talking to you again about your next project. Thank you, Mary Payne. It was really great being here. Okay, thanks.